Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. This is not an option. This is not something that say, well, if you'd like to do this, this perhaps you'd like to consider doing it this way. We're not asking any nation state, any member state to do us a favor. We're asking them to follow the rules and to follow the law. Welcome to this hour of the program, folks. Rob Reaganridge with you on this Thursday afternoon. Now, that was Canada's ambassador to the United Nations, Bob Ray, speaking before the General Assembly uh, back in late February as Russia was invading Ukraine, calling on the United Nations to do its job to stand up for what's right. And I think it's important that all of that be said. Now, obviously, I think there were those who were somewhat cynical about institutions like the United Nations, whether they're of value. But I think at the same time, those who believe in, in multilateralism, those who believe in, in international law as expressed via bodies like the United Nations also need to recognize that there's a lot at stake here and, and they should want things to change. The status quo is not working, I think, in, in anybody's best interest right now. So to that end, I think Canada's ambassador to the U.N. has been you know, striking an interesting balance here and recognizing the potential for the United Nations to be able to respond meaningfully to situations like this, but also recognizing that maybe it's not quite there. Ultimately, the United Nations is really just the sum of its parts, and individual nations have to decide that this matters. So maybe that's in part what it comes down to. Uh, But certainly he's been an important voice in the conversation happening at the United Nations, and I would say a principled and somewhat unapologetic voice in standing up for what's right, in standing up for Canadian principles, in standing up against Russian aggression, Russian disinformation, Russian lies, for that matter. So to that end, very pleased to be welcomed to the program here this afternoon by former Premier of Ontario, former Member of Parliament, former Interim Leader of the Federal Liberals, and currently, since uh, the summer of 2020, Canada's Ambassador to the United Nations, Bob Ray, joins us on the line here this afternoon. Mr. Ray, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Good to be with you, too. You know, it's coming up on two years since you've been appointed to that position at the United Nations. And obviously, a lot's changed in the last three months. To what extent do you feel like, you know, your role or the importance of your role has has evolved over the last three months, first of all? Well, I think I've, I've been given a, 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 the opportunity, uh, as, as, as any ambassador would be in these circumstances, to speak for their country. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I've, uh, I've I've tried to take advantage of that opportunity to speak as clearly as I can on issues that uh, I think matter to Canadians and and matter to members of the UN. And I think that um, we've had a good response from uh, from member states here, from other ambassadors, and from many Canadians about uh, about the work that I've been doing. And I I appreciate the uh, the chance to do it very much. Diplomacy can be delicate, uh, a delicate art, uh, which I'm, I'm sure you can appreciate. But at, at times there is a need to to stand on principle and make those principles known. You have been, I think it's fair to say, somewhat even unapologetic in, in standing for what's right, standing for Canada's principles, condemning Russian aggression. To, to what extent do you have that, that freedom to be so, so clear, so unequivocal? Well, I, I feel very lucky to have had such strong support from uh, the, the Prime Minister and Minister Jolie, uh, Minister Anand, uh, Minister Sajjan, and uh, many parliamentarians from different parties who've made a point of reaching out to me to to say that they appreciate uh, the the way I've spoken. I, I've had, um, I mean, I do check in with mm-hmm. <laughs> with 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 my bosses about what 
what uh, where we're going. Uh, but I, I do think it's really important at this particular moment in time to sp- speak to the Russians in a way that they will be under no doubts as to what our position is. And I'm glad to say that our government and many other countries are following up the words that we use here at the UN with actions that show the seriousness of our purpose in dealing with the Russian aggression. Indeed. And, and in navigating the systems of the United Nations, and, and I heard you, you remark recently that it is an imperfect institution. Do, do you feel, though, that it, that it still has value, that, that there's an opportunity to address even a situation like this through the United Nations apparatus? Well, if we didn't, if we didn't have a UN, we'd have to invent it. I mean, the fact is, is that it is a place where everyone, where everyone comes. There's 193 members, many countries with whom we have, we're in total disagreement. Um, you know, North Korea, you know, go down the list, and and it's important for for us to to take advantage of this forum when we can to use it um, in ways that I think make good sense. It's also important that to remember that the UN has many other functions. It's a humanitarian coordinator, humanitarian agency dealing with refugees, with assistance to the most vulnerable people in the world. Through all of its agencies, uh, like the World Food Program and uh, UNICEF and other agencies, it does tremendous work on the ground. Um, And it's also a place where we hope that efforts can be made to find peace and to find an answer to conflict, which is uh, currently overwhelming the world and and uh, creating huge uh, huge problems for for millions of people. Um, as I've said before, it, you know you don't blame. Um, <laughs> we say in New York, we we don't blame Madison Square Gardens every time the Knicks lose a basketball game, right. and you don't blame the United Nations for the fact that there's terrible conflict in the world. There, the conflict that's being carried out is being carried out by member states. Well, of course, one of the big obstacles to dealing with the situation in Ukraine is is the veto that Russia has on, on the Security Council. Now, I know that that's been the subject of a motion this week of the United Nations. But, I mean, how problematic is that veto? And, and is it possible that, that that could change? Well, I think changing it is going to be very difficult because the Russians have a veto over losing their veto. Right. So, you know, it's sort of we're sort of stuck in a catch-22. I think it's like having a... Uh, uh, when your heart isn't working properly, the doctors do a bypass. And I think we, we've got to focus on what can we do to do a bypass of the Security Council? How can we get around uh, the, the, the impotence and the dysfunction of the Security Council? And that's what we're doing. Uh, we're using the General Assembly in a more active way. Uh, the membership of the General Assembly is stepping up. Uh, we're trying to create other more informal institutions um, uh, and other ways in which we can respond uh, effectively through the United Nations to what's going on. And and I think that's the right approach. The Security Council, unfortunately, is stuck because of the veto. But as I said yesterday, the, the veto, they can't, the Russians can't veto the entire UN. They can't veto everything that, that happens. They, they, we can't allow the sidelining that's happened at the, at the, um, uh, at the Security Council to become a sidelining of the United Nations itself, and that's really where I think we have uh, we have some work to do to, to to be more creative about how we get around the uh, the institutional blockages that exist at the UN. 
Yeah, you, you described it in your, your speech this week as anachronistic and undemocratic, and I think a strong case yeah. can be made on, on both counts, and not not just specific to, to Russia either. No. No, I mean, and I think it's important to remember Canada disassociated itself, and when Mr. Kretschmann was the prime minister, very clearly from the decision of the United States to invade, and the UK to invade Iraq. We were opposed to that. Um, we opposed the British and the French when they invaded uh, Egypt uh, at the Suez Canal. We we said that was a bad, that was a terrible idea, and we we got them out of the out of the situation by by uh, having a ceasefire and bringing in peacekeepers. So uh, I, I think that you know, Canada's record is pretty clear uh, that we. We really, do, we really don't like aggression, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> and we think it's against the foundational principle of of, uh, of of international law. And so we 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 don't favor these kinds of interventions that that lead to such uh, terrible consequences. I mean, the consequences of the aggression in in Iraq uh, cost trillions of dollars. Uh, the, the consequences of the Russian aggression in Syria have cost uh, hundreds of thousands of lives, and and we're seeing the consequences in Ukraine for this kind of aggression. It's uh, it's simply terrible, and we have to deal with it. So there was this this motion that was adopted this week. So this, I mean, potentially could be significant. I guess the idea is that uh, any of these these five permanent members of the Security Council, if they use that veto power, then I guess what they they would have to go before the General Assembly to to explain or justify. Is is that basically it? Yeah, and it's 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 an attempt to say to the members of the Security Council uh, and to the Security Council itself, you you are an agent. You you are like uh, like we are all agents of the. United Nations organization, you have to be accountable to somebody for what you do. Uh, and you can't just go off and do whatever the hell you want without paying the consequences of it. The fact is, is this is not a, a, a revolutionary <laughs> move. Mm-hmm. Uh, really what it's saying is just, you just got, you, you've got to come and you've got to come and explain and we've got a chance to respond to what you're doing. And so it puts the General Assembly back into the center of the picture when a country decides to use the veto uh, and particularly to use it in the way that was used by the Russians. But others who might choose to use it would have to understand that they would have to defend themselves. The British, the French and the Americans all said fine. The Chinese did not oppose the resolution. The resolution was passed on a voice vote um, and and was passed by consensus. So the Russians didn't agree with it, but they, they're going to have to live with it. But I mean, as we've seen thus far through this invasion, the, you know, the Russian excuses, explanations, you know, even even denials of, of what's been obvious in terms of what they've been doing to Ukraine. Uh, they, they've almost been laughable at some level. I, I don't know that they, they really almost feel compelled in any level that they have to justify themselves or they're not putting a lot of effort into that. I mean, at least in terms of addressing this situation, what, what could possibly come from, from this motion being adopted, do you think? Well, it, it exposes them to more uh, to more opprobrium, to more uh, just negative publicity. That's just the the reality of the situation. It puts them in a it puts them in the most difficult situation they can be in the in the uh, in the court of, of global public opinion. And that's something that you know we we have to deal with, and 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 uh, they they will have to live with. Um, you mentioned everything about what Russia is doing, except for the word lie. The Russians right. are lying a lot. 
They're just saying things that are not true, that are actually the opposite of the truth. And they're using that to defend their position. And that's what's not going to work. It's not acceptable. And uh, it, it can't be allowed to, uh, to, to happen without, without people calling them on it. We, we need to keep on being able to call out Russia for what they're doing. And then matching what we're, what we're saying here with what we're doing to defend Ukraine. Um, and that's really the key, is that Russians are going to be much more keenly aware of what's going on in the world by the degree of resistance and opposition that they're facing to their aggression in Ukraine. And that's really why I think it's the meetings that have happened this week in Germany have been really important in reinforcing the common positions of the U.S. Uh, and its allies in not only talking about what's going on, but doing stuff. And I think it's the doing of the stuff that's going to end, end up helping to make a difference in getting us to a better place. Well, let's hope so. We'll leave it there. Bob Ray, thank you so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate the conversation. Good to talk with you. Take good care now. Likewise, you as well. Thanks again. Bye-bye. All right, there you go. That's Bob Ray, Canada's ambassador to the United Nations. The National Microbiology Laboratory in Winnipeg is Canada's highest security microbiology laboratory. Back in January of 2021, uh, two scientists were fired from there. These two scientists, in fact, had lost their security clearances back in July of 2019. The RCMP was called in to investigate. They were dismissed in January 2021. So why? Well, the Globe and Mail has reported that a high-ranking officer in China's People Liberation Army collaborated on Ebola research with one of the scientists. And the RCMP are investigating whether these scientists passed on Canadian intellectual property to China. So a potential espionage situation, again, at Canada's highest security microbiology laboratory. That's about as serious as it gets. What does the government know about this? Well, that's a question we haven't really been able to answer. Uh, For about nine months now, opposition parties have been demanding that the government make public unredacted versions of the documents they have that pertain to all of this. But so far, that hasn't happened. There's been work to find a compromise, some sort of a a situation, a scenario where uh, the opposition parties could get access to these secret documents. Understandably, national security has to, to matter here. But the solution that's been reached here doesn't seem like an adequate solution. As we've learned this week, the Liberal government and the NDP have struck a deal to set up an ad hoc committee to gain access to these documents, as in the Liberals and the NDP, and that's it. So the official opposition is left out of this. So this, this seems, well, it seems political, honestly, in a situation that we certainly should not be politicized at all. Anyway, joining us uh, for some thoughts, some reaction, very pleased to welcome the program uh, here this afternoon, Michael Chong, who's conservative MP for Wellington, Halton Hills in Ontario, is the party's foreign affairs critic, has been actively involved on this file. Mr. Chong, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Uh, Great to be here, Rob. Okay, so the idea of setting up some kind of a committee to review these documents, that seemed reasonable, but what do you make of, of this solution here? Well, let's be clear here. This is not a committee of parliament. The Liberals and the NDP are bypassing Parliament and therefore bypassing accountability. Uh, The committee that they have set up undermines 
our democratic institutions. It undermines Parliament because it actually is not part of Parliament. It's like you or I decided to get a group of people together to set up a committee in, in Calgary uh, under our own authority. Well, that's not a parliamentary committee. And that's why we will not be participating as Conservatives in this non-parliamentary committee. It's an attempt by the government, we believe, to cover up something very serious that happened at the Winnipeg lab several years ago. Um, clearly, the Liberal government is in full panic mode because this committee was suddenly announced yesterday because I simply asked uh, for a motion to be debated at the Foreign Affairs Committee of Parliament uh, on the Winnipeg lab documents. I simply made that request of the chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee, which is a parliamentary committee, on Monday, just four days ago, and suddenly the government has acted with huge speed in a way that they normally never do to announce this committee that sits outside Parliament. And so my read on the situation is that they are in complete panic mode and trying to cover something up. And what is so unfortunate about all this is that they're doing it with the support of the NDP. And it's shameful that the NDP have sold out their principles and joined forces with the Liberals to block Parliament from getting this information. Right, and that, that's important to point out because th- this is not actually a, a parliamentary committee, is it? No, it's not. It's, it's, it's like any neighborhood committee that somebody would set up. It's right. all fine and dandy for somebody to set that up, but it's not a parliamentary committee. Um, you will read no record of it in the Hansard of Parliament. You will read no record of it um, in parliamentary history because it sits outside Parliament. It's an ad hoc committee that the government is trying to deflect attention to, to get attention off the real issue, which is that Parliament needs the documents, needs the information about the national security breaches at the Winnipeg Lab. Well, the justification from the NDP's foreign affairs critic, Heather McPherson, is that, you know, there, there was an urgency to this. Uh, she says, my priority is getting those documents to parliamentarians. There was a logjam, she says. Now, what, what do you make of that explanation? Well, I don't think that holds water. Uh, the NDP supported the motion to demand the documents last parliament. Um, they voted for uh, the orders that asked the government to produce these documents, and now they're saying that that's not the way to go. Uh, I think this is all part of the larger deal that they've cooked up with the Liberals to prop up the Liberal government over the next several years. And in doing so, they're abdicating their responsibility to their constituents and and to the country when they were elected. They weren't elected uh, to government. They were elected as an opposition party, uh, and they uh, their constituents believe that they should hold the government accountable, not prop them up to cover up what happened at the Winnipeg Lab. Obviously, in dealing with all of this, there's a need for some sensitivity, especially when it comes to dealing with top-secret documents. So what was the, the right way to, to move forward on this, in your view? Well, that's a great question, Rob. So we proposed, and we are proposing, something very responsible. We are proposing that the government hand over the documents to the parliamentary law clerk, who is a nonpartisan law clerk of the House of Commons. This parliamentary law clerk would get two sets of documents under lock and key. One set would be the redacted documents uh, that the government believes should be blacked out because of national security and other reasons, and then a second copy of the documents that are unredacted, in other words, in their original form. The law clerk would then consult with national security experts of the government about the redactions and then would advise members of parliament on the committee about these redactions. Um, And so no information that would be injurious to national security 
or to an ongoing criminal investigation would ever be publicly released. And so that is a very responsible way to do this. It's what happens in other first world democracies. It's how they handle it in the United States Congress. It's how they handle it in the United Kingdom Parliament. Uh, Parliamentarians have access on parliamentary committees to high-level, highly classified documents where they can ensure and hold the government accountable for national security. This government doesn't trust Parliament, and doing so, it's clearly indicating it doesn't trust Canadians who elect MPs to Parliament. So this basically, this constitutes an end run around Parliament then, in your view? Absolutely. There's no question about it. Mm -hmm. You can consult any parliamentary expert. This is absolutely an end run around Parliament. And, you know, it sets a dangerous precedent because this is now the second committee that has been established in recent years that does an end run around Parliament. We now have, uh, there's another committee that was established about two years ago called the National Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians. It, too, is a non-parliamentary committee. It sits outside Parliament. It's a committee of the Prime Minister's office. And so we've now got two committees that sit outside Parliament that have nothing to do with Parliament, that aren't under the authority of Parliament. And so where are we going to be in 10, 15 years? Half a dozen, a dozen committees that sit outside Parliament that the government uses to deflect accountability, deflect attention away from its Parliament? I think these are very dangerous precedents that weaken our democracy. Uh, Canadians elect, Calgarians elect people to the House of Commons, and they expect that those members have the tools to hold the government accountable and to represent their interests in Ottawa. What the government is doing with these non-parliamentary committees is saying that Parliament doesn't matter and that they're going to create their own structures outside Parliament in order to get the job done because they can better control things that way. What are we hoping these documents can can tell us about this situation? I mean, obviously, we we know some of the basics about what happened here when the the security was revoked, when the RCMP got involved, when these these scientists were fired. What are the outstanding questions, though, and and what can these documents inform us? That's an excellent question. So what we need to get to the heart of is how did a Chinese military scientist, how did a member of the People's Liberation Army of China gain access to work in the government's top lab in Winnipeg? How did foreign nationals, Chinese foreign nationals, gain access to work in that lab, which is normally restricted only to Canadian citizens or citizens of allies of Canada in exceptional circumstances? Uh, We need to know who broke protocol, who broke the security procedures of the government to ensure that this kind of security breach never happens again. We need to find out what the nature of was of the collaboration between the Winnipeg Lab and the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which is China's uh, virology lab in Wuhan, China, a place where it is alleged that the coronavirus emerged from. Uh, We need to understand what the nature of that collaboration was, what kind of controls there were on shipping Henneba and Ebola viruses from Winnipeg to the Wuhan lab, and to ensure that safety is upheld. We need to find out uh, what exactly uh, what exactly else happened at that lab. We know that the Chinese government funded research in that lab. How did that allowed, how was that allowed to happen? Mm-hmm. Uh, we know that CSIS raised alarm bells about this. Uh, we need to know the details of what exactly happened beyond what you mentioned in your opening remarks to this broadcast because only then will we be able to ensure that the government doesn't ever do this again in the future. If we just 
brush this under the rug. We are at risk that at some future date we're going to have breaches like this again uh, at the Winnipeg Lab or somewhere else in the government of Canada. Do we know what prompted the, the, the investigation in the first place in, in the summer of 2019? We do. Uh, we, we don't know. We know. What we do know is this. We know that CSIS first raised the alarm bells in 2019. Mm-hmm. And why CSIS raised the alarm bells, how they came, this came to their attention, we are uncertain. Uh, there's speculation. It could have been uh, foreign intelligence that came in. Uh, raising the alarm bells, asking CSIS what Chinese military scientists were doing, accessing a top-level Canadian government lab. Uh, it could have been uh, intelligence from elsewhere, but it started with CSIS ringing alarm bells. That's what we do know. It's led to an RCMP investigation that is ongoing, uh, a criminal investigation about what took place at the lab. We also know that two of the senior figures in the Public Health Agency of Canada and at the National Microbiology Lab in Winnipeg suddenly resigned in the middle of the pandemic uh, without much explanation on a Friday afternoon, and they have never been heard from since. So there is a lot of things we don't know about what happened uh, that we need to get to the bottom of it. That's what accountability is all about, holding people accountable for mistakes and ensuring that mistakes like that don't take place again. Okay, so what do we know about the timeline here for this ad hoc committee, or where does this all go from here? Well, this committee is uh, under the auspices of of the government. So, you know, at the end of the day, they can decide what they want to do with the committee. I don't think the committee is going to get the information it needs to come to uh, any determination as to what happened and any solid set of recommendations about how to prevent this from happening again. And here's the proof. This other committee that the government set up several years ago, this National Security and Intelligence Committee that they set up outside Parliament, its chair recently, uh, David McGinty, recently criticized the government, and he's a liberal. He recently criticized the liberal government for not providing with the, co- the committee with the information it needed to do its job. So I'm very skeptical that this new committee announced yesterday is going to get the information it needs to do its job about the Winnipeg Lab documents. And that's why... We're not participating in the committee. Uh, we think it's an affront to Parliament. Uh, we think Parliament and, and its committees are where the documents should be sent. All right, we'll leave it there for now. Michael Chong, thank you so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate this. Thanks for having me. All the best. Uh, Michael Chong is the Conservative Party's foreign affairs critic. He's a member of Parliament for Wellington, uh, Halton Hills in Ontario. And like I say, I mean, he, he's been uh, really at the front of uh, this particular file. In, in asking some important questions and trying to hold the government to account on all of this. So are they, are they trying to hide something here? So there, there's a lot of unanswered questions about a very serious situation. I don't think this is the best way to get to the truth here, unfortunately. When illegal blockades hurt workers and endangered public safety, police were clear that they needed tools not held by any federal, provincial, or territorial law. It was only after we got advice from law enforcement that we invoked the Emergencies Act. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. So, question answered, right? They needed it, they did it, end of story. But, of course, it's not the end of the story. It's not even the end of the beginning. Uh, This week, of course, uh, the inquiry, the public inquiry into the use of the Emergencies Act was launched, which is not something we should give the government credit for because that's required of the government once the Emergencies Act is invoked. 
the point of the inquiry is to scrutinize that decision. The point of doing all of this is to make sure that there is a very high bar set for ever using these emergency powers. If they're justified, then fine. And, and governments wouldn't have anything to worry about from that additional scrutiny. But the decision was frivolous. If the decision was an overreaction, if the decision was made without sufficient evidence, that could be problematic. And again, that's the point of all of this. If a, a government made the decision to invoke the Emergencies Act and it wasn't justified, that needs to be noted. That needs to be called out. So what are we to make of the fact that, that A, the government fully believes that it made the right decision? That part shouldn't surprise us. But beyond those kinds of comments, the ability for this inquiry to maybe get to those kinds of answers uh, that could potentially make the government uncomfortable. Are we going to get to that point? Because it's not just that the government believes it did the right thing. All, all governments always do, pretty much. But is this inquiry, and by extension, are Canadians going to be able to see uh, the evidence that was used to justify this? Are we going to have access to cabinet documents that give us insight into the decision-making process? There's a specific threshold in declaring a public emergency and therefore invoking the Emergencies Act. What did the government have? that convinced them that the situation met that threshold. So already, out of the gate, there's some skepticism about whether we're going to see all of that because the government is not being clear on the question of whether this inquiry will have access to cabinet documents. Is the government prepared to waive cabinet confidentiality? So far, they're they're being coy. They're being vague. In other words, uh, they're not giving us a straight answer. Well, certainly something our next guest has noticed, uh, Matt Gurney. Columnist for the National Post has a great piece today looking at this very question. The Canadians deserve answers, but at this point, it's unclear whether we will get them. NationalPost.com. Uh, Matt Gurney joins us on the line here this afternoon. Matt, great to have you with us here. Welcome back to the program. Always nice to be here. So, I mean, obviously, look, we were expecting this. This is part of the whole process. And I think the idea of, okay, you know, the government invoked the Emergencies Act. It was controversial. But now we'll get a, a full airing of everything. I mean, is, is that overly optimistic just based on the last few days? Yep. <laughs> Interview complete. <laughs> exactly. The answer is yep. Um, look, the, the Emergencies Act cleverly and appropriately builds in automatic accountability functions. Mm-hmm. The government doesn't have a choice in this. You, you invoke the Emergencies Act, there must be accountability and reviews afterwards. And that is, to my mind, completely uh, warranted and appropriate. What we are already seeing, though, is that the government gets to have some input on what that accountability looks like. So looking at the events of February, and I mean both the Ottawa occupation, but also the border blockades, there are two issues. One of the issues is the the, the origins of, the nature of, the funding of, the composition of, the goals of the Ottawa protesters and the border blockaders. The other issue specifically in the context of the Emergencies Act, is the federal government response. Yeah. Both of those things need to be explored. Both of those things need to have real serious scrutiny. And the federal government seems to be trying to do everything in its power to make sure 100% of the focus is on one out of those two issues. 
Yeah, the government's pretty clear uh, already. They, they believe they were justified. So in their minds, maybe answering that question is, is moot because they've already answered that. But, but they don't get to decide that, right? It's one thing to say, okay, let's understand how we got to that point, what these protests, these blockades were all about. That's fair. But that, that can't be all this is about. So what, why do you think, though, that they want it to be that way? Because I think they do get to decide, or at least I'm starting to worry that they'll be able to. I think the government has concluded, and I am not convinced that they are wrong, that they will be able to guide this process. So there's two there's two accountability things unfolding uh, in tandem right now, but they're different. And we need to be clear about this. There is an independent public inquiry that the government has called, as required under the Emergencies Act, and there is also a joint parliamentary committee. These are separate processes. They're happening at the same time, and they're looking at the same thing, but they're separate. I don't know what the independent inquiry will be able to come up with. Like, I I just honestly don't know. We're going to have to see what the uh, the judge who's been paneled to do this, what he goes after, what influence he can wield, what documents he can get, et cetera, et cetera. So we'll see. But what we can already see by the second process, the parliamentary committee, is that the government is not committing. They haven't said no yet, but they are not committing to disclose documents that would be relevant. And David Lemetti, the attorney general and the justice minister, has already repeatedly, during the testimony on Tuesday, he repeatedly declined to answer questions on the grounds of cabinet confidentiality. And let me spend 15 seconds telling the listeners what that is. The prime minister and his ministers, when they meet officially as a cabinet, they do so under the expectation that everything they say is confidential. It it makes sense. It's the only way to have a free and open debate on matters of, uh, of, of controversial policy It makes perfect sense that we'd agree to that. But if the government gets its way, it could easily set up a situation where only Trudeau and his cabinet are literally capable of evaluating whether or not Trudeau and his cabinet behaved appropriately. And that we just can't as a public, we cannot allow the prime minister to be the only person in the country capable of judging himself. Well, and that's an important point. Look, I, I think at some level, there's a lot of public opinion baked in that, that you know, a lot of folks think the government uh, was justified in, in invoking the Emergencies Act. A lot of people think it was an overreaction. And I don't know if this is going to necessarily change any of that. But at the heart of this is an important question. You allude to it in your piece that the threshold for this has to be high. And, and there's actually a very specific threshold that needs to be met. So the question of whether the government met that threshold, whether the evidence they had to guide their decision was at the level it needed to be, is, is a very important question, and it's an unanswered question at this point. Do you think the government fears that there is still some potential embarrassment here? You know what? Probably. But I also think this is a government that like, we, we don't need to, to look at the cat entrails here to try and ask ourselves, why is the Trudeau government being secretive? Mm-hmm. The Trudeau government is secretive. And this is something that you and I have talked about before. Many people have talked about, about this before. And this is well beyond the realm of what could be called, oh, like, this is a partisan criticism of the government. No. The access to information system under this government is broken. Media watchdogs uh, in this country and media observers in other countries have noted the government's habit of not disclosing information. We just had a new report out this week about the uh, the Canadian uh, Federal Archive 
about how dysfunctional it is. Secrecy by default is the way this government operates. So when we see that they are not committing to release all the relevant information, maybe even they're trying to suppress some information, maybe they're trying to bury something explosive, or maybe it's just force of habit. It's it's an indictment of them, and I think that's fair. I, there's also the question of precedent, and it goes back to the decision itself in February that uh, are we lowering the bar for the use of the Emergencies Act, which is by definition supposed to be an emergency tool. Uh, this process is supposed to maybe at some level almost discourage uh, you know the casual use of this, but if we're in a situation where the government can sort of shape and steer this this process in a certain direction and avoid scrutiny on important questions, to what extent do you think that that also, in a way, makes it easier for future governments to go down this path? Um, well, if it works, then they, they've set the template, haven't they? Yeah. Like, it's, it, it makes it really easy. If, if we now get ourselves into a situation where we establish as precedent that the Emergencies Act can be invoked by cabinet on the basis of information that only the cabinet will be able to judge because only the cabinet will ever have access to it. I, I, I tend to assume benign motives on, on behalf of most Canadian politicians. I don't assume competence, mm-hmm. but I, I also don't assume that they're evil. But if we are putting ourselves into a situation where, again, like I said, the prime minister, Justin Trudeau, or some future successor, and his ministers or her ministers are the only people capable of deciding whether the Emergencies Act was warranted in any given situation, then we are through the looking glass. That is a recipe, if nothing else, like we don't have to go straight to dystopia here, but if nothing else, that is a a recipe for dysfunction. You know, we saw another example of this just a couple of days ago, right? Like the uh, the Prime Minister's Aga Khan trip uh, five years ago is back in back in the headlines. And apparently, and I, I know I'm changing the topic a bit, but apparently the RCMP thought about maybe laying a fraud charge against the Prime Minister. But when they looked carefully at the letter of the law, they realized there was a loophole mm-hmm. where the Prime Minister would avoid legal jeopardy if the senior member of his government department said the trip was approved and the senior member of the prime minister's government department is the prime minister. So it's like this, there's a loophole in there that makes accountability in some context uh, impossible. We need to fix that loophole, but now we're looking at possibly an exponentially worse one. If cabinet confidentiality blocks a full investigation of the cabinet's decision-making here, that's not good. That is, in fact, I would say, bad. Yeah, I, I think that's what it comes down to. I mean, you know, the, the, the thrust of your piece is that Canadians deserve answers. And it doesn't matter what those Canadians think about the decision, whether Canadians like it, whether they didn't. The fact is that this is, is something that Canadians are very much entitled to here. Emergency powers invoked by the government and a process that will help us all thoroughly understand what led to that, why the decision was made. Otherwise, what are we doing here? What we're doing, I, I, I worry, look, hey, I don't know, maybe maybe the ghost of accountability future will, will visit the prime minister in the night and he'll decide to release the cabinet documents or maybe we can negotiate some way that the, the parliamentary committee and the, the independent uh, inquiry 
can look at some of these cabinet documents in a way that's been vetted. We do have procedures that allow for parliamentary scrutiny of classified material in some circumstances. So we could probably figure out some way of doing this. I just, I'm just not convinced this government will do this because here's the problem, Rob. There are two things that are possible based on what happened about two months ago now. One, that the Emergencies Act was necessary, but only confidential information could prove it. If that's the case, that puts this federal government in a legitimate bind. And I I sympathize with them. That is very possible. Mm -hmm. The other possibility, of course, is that after weeks of neglecting the crisis and underreacting, A government that was under enormous political pressure and was already exhausted by two years of COVID-19 pandemic, panicked and overreached, and now doesn't want the public to find out about it. And they may have an inbuilt way to make sure that they never do. The question for Canadians right now is, do you trust the prime minister to be the judge of himself? I don't. I think most Canadians won't. But I bet about 30% of the population will think the only man capable of just judging Justin Trudeau is Justin Trudeau. So yeah. I don't know. I don't know where this is going to lead us. I, I, I admit I got a bad feeling about this one. Yeah, understandably so. We'll see how it all plays out. As mentioned, your latest is up at nationalpost.com. Matt, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us here. Thanks, Ben. Take care. All right, you as well. There you go, Matt Gurney, columnist for the National Post, nationalpost.com. Now, amid all of this, there's uh, another protest uh, set for this weekend in Ottawa. Ottawa's police chief saying, uh, look, we've learned some lessons from what happened previous. So we're going to be prepared for whatever might unfold this weekend. We'll touch on that. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, Rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.